the world leader in Internet Talk Radio. Internet Talk Radio. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Do you have questions concerning your personal portfolio? And would you like to know where the market's going before it gets there? Then you need to tune in to Elite Masters of Trading, hosted by the Traders Coach, Robin Day, every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Robin has great ideas on how to invest, save, and make money. So become an elite trader in the market every Wednesday at 10 a.m. with the Traders Coach, Robin Dane, and Elite Masters of Trading, right here on the Voice America Radio Network. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you're listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkgaard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkgaard every Wednesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Time. Invoke thought, feeling, and inspiration into your life right here on voiceamerica.com. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to take a look behind the scenes of the Michael Jackson trial behind the scenes and into the courtroom. I can tell you about uh, my experience that I recently had where I actually was in Santa Maria and in the courtroom. A fascinating experience, um, one that I plan to do again. And But I thought I would give you some um, of what, somewhat of an update since we haven't been talking about Michael Jackson uh, for a while and it really is quite fascinating. Um, you know, a lot of people, I, I think, are sort of think that this has been going on a long time and have lost some interest. But you know, the truth is that what's going on, if you know what's really going on, is quite fascinating. Um, first of all, let me tell you with what's tell you about what's going on today. Apparently, today we had a social worker testify. Um, the social worker who had interviewed the boy who's the current accuser, and his mother and brother and sister on February 20th, which was two weeks after the documentary Living with Michael Jackson aired. Now, um, this social worker, whose name is Irene Peters, told the jury, quote, I asked him point blank, she's talking about the boy who is the current accuser, I asked him point blank if he had ever slept in bed with Michael Jackson. He said no. Well, you know, I know we only get to hear, um, when, when you're not in the courtroom, you only get to hear little snippets like this. 
But nonetheless, um, there is no information that's come out about this social worker seeming to be aware of the fact that when one asks a child um, in an investigation like this about whether they've been molested, um, needless to say, much of the time, you are getting going to get a child who says, no, nothing happened. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And in particular, in this case, um, there are some specific reasons for that. Now, before I get into that, um, let me tell you, in addition, that this interview was conducted in Los Angeles at the home of the man who the woman who the boy's mother was dating and who she later married. And um, the mother started the interview by playing a tape of Jackson. Now, another uh, key clue as to why um, the, the family may well have been um, not telling the truth about his being molested was because there were um, there were there was a Jackson bodyguard and several other people present in the apartment where the interviews took place. Now, needless to say, if there is a bodyguard, a big burly bodyguard, uh, standing around while you are in another room being interviewed by social services, being asked whether you were molested by Michael Jackson. What do you think the likelihood is of the boy or his family saying yes? Do you think they might be a little concerned about their physical well-being? Um, I would say so. And even when there are cases where there are not big burly bodyguards standing by, which is most of the time, people, children are afraid and their families, children, but let's talk about the child first, children are afraid to tell people or are hesitant to tell people that they, who are questioning them, uh, that they were molested. Why? First of all, children, even though um, this isn't an accurate perception, children feel, it's accurate to them, uh, children feel as though they are responsible for the abuse. They feel that they shouldn't have done something, um, that they were the ones who caused this person whether it be Michael Jackson or one's father or stepfather or somebody else, that the child feels that they caused the abuser to abuse them. And uh, this lasts not only during childhood, but even as adults. I have treated many patients who, as adults, talking about their um, abuse, will still insist, even as grown-ups, that they were responsible, it was their fault that they were molested. There are many reasons why children and adults feel like this. Um, part of it is that the molester will often capitalize on these fears and tell the child that indeed they are responsible for making them act out like this. Um, also, if it's somebody who the child wants to feel loves them like a little girl's father or even like Michael Jackson because certainly um, this boy wanted to believe that Michael Jackson, with whom he was incredibly in awe 
loved him. You know, he was, Michael Jackson was a father surrogate at the time. Uh, the family was divorced and um, estranged, and the boy needed a father more present in his life. And Michael Jackson seemed to be the perfect one, lavishing him and his family with presents and so on. So um, when a child wants to believe so badly that the abuser really loves them, they put that over their own well-being. In other words, if they convince themselves that this person does still love them and it's just that they are bad, the child is bad for somehow being too sexy, being too attractive, being too um, irresistible, then they can preserve this illusion that the molester really loves them, despite what the molester is doing. So that's one reason why children don't tell. Another reason is that the child is afraid, and again, this would um, speak here to the big burly bodyguard, and, um, but even when there isn't one, they're just afraid of losing the love of the, of the molester. They're afraid, sometimes they are afraid physically, afraid for their lives, afraid that they will be hurt or that someone in their family will be hurt because molesters will often um, use that threat. If you don't do what I say, then I will hurt your mother or I will hurt your brother or sister or father or somebody. So there's that kind of fear as well. Um, shame is another part of this. Shame and guilt. Again, if the child believes, as pretty much all of them do, that they are responsible, there's a lot of shame and guilt connected to that. Another reason is um, not wanting to get their parent in trouble. For example, in this case, um, the boy, the current accuser, may well not want to get his mother in trouble by acknowledging that um, she allowed him to be in Michael Jackson's bed and that's where, or in his room even, and that's where he was molested. That somehow she allowed it to happen. He could be afraid knowing that his mother and father had custody a custody fight. He could be afraid that um, if he were to acknowledge that this happened while he was in his mother's custody, that custody could be taken away from her. And perhaps he doesn't want to be with his father. Um there are all kinds of reasons like this. Um, another one, of course, um, of course, it's more so in a case like this where there's the media breathing down everyone's neck. Um, the boy did not want people to believe that Michael Jackson had molested him because as it was after the documentary, Living with Michael Jackson, a British documentary that aired um, in America as well, and after that aired, uh, his friends from school were making fun of him, saying, teasing him, saying that he was gay, saying that uh, he had slept with Michael Jackson, he had had sex with Michael Jackson. So needless to say, this boy knew uh, that if he admitted that they had had sex or had engaged in some kind of sexual activity, that this was just a small sample. The teasing by his playmates was just a small sample of the teasing that he could expect for the rest of his life. 
So all of these things played a role in the boy, who's the current accuser, not not coming forward and acknowledging that um, he had been molested. Stay tuned. When we come back, I'll talk to you, give you some more insights behind the scenes and tell you about what actually happened in the courtroom. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Informative, educational, insightful. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rack and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to Stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Information you need, when you need it, voiceamerica.com. Do you have questions concerning your personal portfolio? And would you like to know where the market's going before it gets there? Then you need to tune in to Elite Masters of Trading, hosted by the Traders Coach, Robin Dane, every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Robin has great ideas on how to invest, save, and make money. So become an elite trader in the market every Wednesday at 10 a.m. with the Traders Coach, Robin Dane, and Elite Masters of Trading, right here on the Voice America Radio Network. Hello, this is Rory Garay, President of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Made Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the Greyhound. Learn about the history of the Greyhound, discuss proper obedience and training techniques, and find out more about the Greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption effort of the former race dog. If you own a Greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Continuing to be the authority in Internet talk radio, you're listening to voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking about going behind the scenes in the Michael Jackson trial, behind the scenes into the courtroom which we will get to, but let me just uh, say a few more words about the current um, the social worker who was on the stand today, 
and uh, the interview and the whole involvement of Child Protective Services. Um, and let me again give out the number because if anyone would like to call in and ask questions about this, uh, I'd be happy to hear from you. It's 888-335-5204, toll free, 888-335-5204. Um, I apologize in advance to those of you who have already heard me say this, but for my new listeners, uh, just so you know my connection to this case, I am the psychiatrist who reported um, Michael Jackson to Child Protective Services twice. One was in November 2002, and one was in uh, February 2003, right after this infamous documentary. And my point in reporting him was um, in California, psychiatrists are mandated to make these reports. And when there is a suspected case of child abuse or child endangerment, and uh, in my opinion, there was at the very least child endangerment and emotional abuse in regard to Michael Jackson's own three children. That was what I was complaining about. This was right after the baby dangling. And it was something I had thought of doing for quite some time. Uh, and the baby dangling pushed me over the edge to do it. Um, I have gotten involved with this case or with Michael Jackson studying him uh, beginning in the early 90s when I was the psychiatric consultant to a book by J. Randy Terraborelli, a biography. And that's where I started uh, learning about his traumatic childhood, difficult uh, difficult life and um, so when I uh, after the baby dangling well actually over the years when I would do interviews I would wind up after the cameras were uh, stopped rolling I would wind up saying to the crew I can't believe that nobody does anything about this to take his children away and the camera crew from the television station would you know usually agree with me and say yeah we can't believe it either and I was doing some interviews after the baby dangling incident about Michael, what could be going through his mind, and what could he be thinking. And um, again, I said to the crew afterwards, I can't believe nobody takes his children away. And as I was walking away, I kept thinking to myself, who um, am I expecting to do this, and why aren't I doing this? Since, as I said, psychiatrists are supposed to be reporting these kinds of things. So I wrote a report. Uh, a brief report, two-page report, to Child Protective Services in Santa Barbara uh, County where Neverland Ranch is. And then followed up and spoke to the um, supervisor there. And um, essentially, as we know, he still has his children during this trial up to today. Um, and so obviously they did not do anything to take them away, but they were concerned about the uh, PR uh, impact of this complaint. And um, since they didn't do anything, and since they told me that one of the reasons why they weren't going to do anything was because uh, nobody had witnessed him, Michael, doing things that would endanger his children, I thought surely after the documentary in February 2003 that we had all witnessed it. And at that point, I wrote a much longer complaint, which you can see um, on my website if you click on News, but please don't do that yet until the end of the show. Um, you can see that uh, it was much longer, and as part of this complaint, this second complaint, 
uh, I talked about, which was based on the documentary, 18 reasons that we all saw from the documentary as to why his children should be taken away. Um, I included information about the boy who later, much later, became well, not much later, but later became the current accuser, what we now, who we now call the current accuser. And uh, I had mentioned him in my complaint, talking about how it was apparent to me as a psychiatrist and apparently apparent to the playmates of uh, the current accuser that he had been molested. And uh, I talked about his body language. I talked about his... Um, He's looking up at Michael with puppy dog, lovesick eyes. Um, I talked about his submissive pose. All the body language spoke to uh, his being very submissive to Michael. Uh, of course, they were holding hands, and they were all they were their body um, their bodies were very close to each other. Another indication of intimacy. They were comfortable with being that close. Another indication of intimacy, just the whole presentation that we saw. And um, I also talked about how verbally we got information that indicated to me that he, in my opinion, that he was uh, already molested. And that was that uh, he talked, for example, he talked about that Michael said, if you love me, you will sleep in my bed. Now, granted, Michael was saying that that was in reference to his wanting the boy to sleep in his bed and he was going to sleep in the floor on the floor but that wasn't the issue it turns out that that language if you love me you will do such and such is classic pedophile language and in fact was language that was already spoken about in the 93 um, complaint that was filed by the boy who got a $25 million or so settlement with Michael Jackson. In his court papers, he described, this was in 93, he described Michael saying to him, if you love me, you will do, and um, in his case, he talked about, or as described in these court papers, various sexual acts. If you love me, you will do perform various sexual acts that I want you to perform. Um, and, and that, you know, idea, if you love me, you will do what I want, is, is classic pedophile. So, um, with all of this in my second complaint, um, and I, I handed that into LA Protect, Child Protective Services, um, and also later sent it to Santa Barbara as well, but I held a press conference in front of the LA Child Protective Services because the point was not just that he had most likely molested this boy, but that Child Protective Services was letting him get away with it because of his celebrity status. And, uh, I mean, it was really pretty um, outrageous, some of the things that I was told as to why Santa Barbara wasn't going to investigate him um, or investigate his children uh, in my after my first complaint. Like, well, Michael Jackson has a gate, a big gate, in the front of Neverland, and we really can't get through that gate. Another excuse, Michael Jackson doesn't send his children to regular school, and that's where we usually interview the children if we can't get to them in their home. Well, as I'm sure you all know, um, if this was not a celebrity, these kinds of excuses, the fact that someone has a big gate and the fact that they don't send their children to public schools 
would not really stand in the way of um, Child Protective Services or the Sheriff's Department or the Police Department getting in there and investigating the children. However, he was getting star treatment, and um, there has yet to be a, that has been made public in any case, um, there has yet to be a good enough investigation of Michael Jackson's contributions to the uh, political campaigns of people in Santa Barbara, and one can't help but think that that may well have played a role in uh, their turning a blind eye to what he may or may not be doing with his children, and at least not investigating it. And so it was after this second complaint that, uh, in which I described the reasons why I thought that this boy um, had been molested, that they then called on this boy and did an investigation um, and asked him about whether he had been molested. And as I was saying at the beginning of the show, he had first denied it for all those reasons um, and then later on admitted it, which is not atypical. And if this trial does not, um, if this trial fails to convict Michael Jackson of child molestation, it will be because Tom Snedden did not listen to me over when I told him over a year ago, a year and a half ago now, um, that using dates claiming that Jackson molested the boy, dates that were starting after the um, documentary aired would not be believable to a jury. Michael Jackson may well have, and most likely did, continue to molest him after the documentary aired on those dates, but it strains credibility to believe that he would have not molested him during all the times that the boy was in his room, in his bed, but that um, he would have just started after uh, it became quite a frenzy in the media after the documentary and that when he was under suspicion already that uh, he would say, hmm, that's a good idea. I think I will molest this boy. That's just not believable and I just don't think a jury is going to believe that. The question is whether they're going to sort of overlook the issue of dates uh, or overlook the issue of whether that was the first time or just a continuation and believe the boy and some of the other people. Um, and now to uh, to start to tell you, we're going to be taking a break soon, but I guess I can give you a little tease as to what it was like to uh, be in Santa Maria, California, where the trial is taking place. And um, you should know that anyone actually is able to uh, get into the courtroom um, well, I don't know if I should say anyone, but I don't know whether they, what they do to screen people out, but there is, you know, there's, um, by law, the public, a certain amount of people um, are supposed to be allowed in each day because in order to keep trials honest and um, so that the public can watch over what is being done in any trial and um, to make sure that, that there isn't any kind of um, bias or, well, uh, it doesn't totally prevent against bias, but to make sure that things are done in a transparent way, relatively transparent, because there ain't nothing transparent about this trial 
Well, no matter how many people from the public are in there, I can tell you that. <laughs> and on that note, we will uh, take a break and be back. I'll tell you about what everybody looked like <laughs> from inside and uh, how everything worked. Everything you wanted to know <laughs> about what was going on in the courtroom at the Michael Jackson trial. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Bringing the world together. You're listening to America's Voice. VoiceAmerica.com Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Are you feeling stuck in some part of your life? You might have some crust busting to do. Crust is anything that you think, feel, or believe that prevents you from living life full out. Step into the crust-free zone with me, Dr. Pat Basile, and get ready to do some serious crust busting. Join us on Thursday mornings on VoiceAmerica.com at 8 a.m. Pacific Time for crust-busting your way to an awesome life. Do you know that over 70% of Americans with severe disabilities are unemployed? Are you one of the 2.5 million Americans with epilepsy? If you are or know someone struggling with these issues, tune in to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. On the show, Joyce will discuss these issues as well as others. She will have a nationally known guests that will offer helpful insight on disability matters and let you, the listener, call in with your questions and concerns. So if you struggle with a disability or know someone who does, listen to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender. Heard every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time here on VoiceAmerica.com. Cutting edge. Challenging. Stimulating. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. When tax time comes, are you the person that goes to your accountant with a shoebox literally full of receipts? Stop wasting your accountant's time as well as your own by organizing your finances with the help of Joe Dunphy and Poor Richard's Shoebox. Heard live every Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, Poor Richard's Shoebox will let you know what you can do to organize for tax time as well as how to get the most out of your retirement. So get all of your receipts together and tune in to Poor Richard's Shoebox with Joe Dunphy every Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on the Voice America Radio Network. Business, sports, religion, legal, pets, entertainment. You're listening to VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're taking a look behind the scenes of the Michael Jackson trial and into the courtroom. 
Um, before the break, I was telling you about how you too could uh, get inside the courtroom, as I did recently. And um, I, I don't really have the t- time frame for when you can, how you can do that, other than to get there really, really early and stand on a line. And it's either by lottery or by first come, first serve, as far as letting in. Um, however many members of the public that they can let in at any one time. Um, so, what it looks like. If, if you are not planning to make the trip to Santa Maria, I'm not necessarily recommending it. I'm just putting it out there as an option in case you're, uh, you're very curious. But um, in case you're not planning on going, let me describe it to you. First of all, everything is a lot smaller than it looks on television. It's kind of like, you know, when you go back to your college years later and uh, or a camp that you went to as a little kid and everything seems to be so much smaller than you remember it. Well, it's kind of like that. Um, it's, you know, on television it's made to, to look like uh, something really grand, something um, huge uh, in a not only in a literal sense of being big, but also in the way that it's played up as, as being something spectacular. Uh, for example, the day that Michael Jackson didn't show up to court some weeks ago, and we saw for, <laughs> for endless minutes on television, we saw um, Tom Mesereau, his attorney, standing outside the courtroom, tapping his toe, um, worrying whether Michael was going to make it in time or not, and whether the judge was going to be throwing him in jail if he didn't. Um, that expanse that you saw of the courtroom, it just made it seem as though it was really a huge area. And I'm here to tell you that it isn't. Um, which, would, which, you know, if you think about it, it's in Santa Maria, which is a relatively small town, although it was bigger than I expected. It isn't a hick town, per se, um, there are businesses, it's pretty modern, uh, all, lots of houses, um, very pretty rolling hills, it's beautiful countryside, but, but it's also, there's also a, a central town, and um, with all the modern conveniences, and, and bigger than one might think, not as big as Santa Barbara, but um, not that much smaller either, or at least it didn't appear. And um, so outside, first of all, you're struck by the um, the amount of media surrounding the courthouse. Um, it's tent city. It's um, it's it's it is you know no wonder they call it a circus, making trials into circuses, because that's kind of what it looks like with um, tents and um, some permanent, some temporary all set up around the courtroom. And it is like going to the big top. You know, these are the sideshows, so to speak. And um, there are areas where the, that are just roped off, little squares for different stations. Um, there is There are some of the bigger stations um, or stations who are there permanently have um, permanently for during this trial, have um, setups where you walk into a kind of uh, sort of a, a build a little tent on stilts, and you go up there in order to um, to do interviews. So that um, you can in the background there's 
the background of the courthouse. Um, and there's also there are trucks. There are um, there is an area that's separated uh, for just where Michael Jackson can stand. You, if you stand in this um, area that's fenced off for more than a second, passing through. Uh, a security, a friendly security guard comes up and asks you what you're doing because they clear that, keep that clear so that he can uh, walk through there and not be mauled by fans. Um, however, there aren't that many fans around to maul him. Um, in fact, I didn't see any when I was up there, but I was told that, that, there, that they were there. Um, I, I, I'm not sure... I guess they didn't make their presence known very much when he isn't going in or out, um, which is, you know, when they call to him. Um, now, going inside, oh, also outside the courtroom, right outside the door where you go into the courtroom, where all the guards are, um, there's an area where people can um, arrange to speak. If you want to talk and, and give interviews, um, you arrange it ahead of time, and during the breaks in the day or after the court day is over, um, the media who is interested gathers at that spot and can ask people questions, um, people such as uh, uh, prosecutors not involved in the case, but because they can't talk, there's a gag order, but prosecutors from other cities or attorneys from other cities um, I will be doing that when I go up the next time. Uh, people who have different perspectives on the case, and um, they in, they ask them questions and interview them, and you know, from newspapers and radio stations and television stations, and then it is fed out to all the media, and they can take whatever they want from um, from these interviews, so that there's always something going on for the media to report on. Inside the courtroom, um, very nice, modern, clean, um, comfortable courtroom. Small, very small. Um, but inside the courtroom is uh, the media is, there are certain sections where the media sits and certain sections where the family sits and certain sections where the public sits. Um, there's a special seat towards the front for the court artist. Um, since no cameras are allowed in the courtroom in this trial, there is a court artist or artists, uh, they take turns, who uh, draw the um, people involved, the, the witnesses who are testifying and the, and the attorneys and the judge, um, primarily the witnesses that change each time. And um, then these, these artistic drawings um, are then sold to the media outside of the courtroom um, so that these things can be published in lieu of photographs being or cameras of any sort being inside the courtroom. Again, this is to keep the, the judicial system uh, honest. But um, I, I, I think that the judge in this case is actually doing a very good job. But... Um, the judicial system and honesty is, I guess, a topic for another show. Uh, I think since OJ, the judicial system has been going downhill rather rapidly and the respect that people have for it and uh, is not the same. But um, 
because people realize that if you're a celebrity or if you have money or if you have a dream team of lawyers, you get a different kind of justice than the people who don't. But as I said, that's a topic for another day. Um, inside the courtroom, it is kind of daunting at first to uh, realize that what you have been watching on television is in front of you, especially given the gravity of the situation. Um, I'll save Michael for last, but I'll tell you about uh, the jury. Um, the jury, even the day that I was there, it was a day when there were three people who were employees from Michael Jackson's Neverland Ranch. Uh, and they they weren't, on the whole, as exciting <laughs> as some of the uh, other witnesses, certainly the boys who have um, acknowledged or denied being abused. And again, the ones who denied being abused have their own agendas. Um, but so this testimony wasn't really, you know, it was very interesting, but it wasn't as uh, as exciting as some of the other people who have testified. But at the same time, I have to give the jury credit for that because I was watching them watch the person testifying, and I must say that they were very attentive, uh, even though it wasn't riveting ter- testimony. So that that was uh, heartening, in in my opinion, to see that uh, that they were taking this so seriously. Now there has been a question, um, and I couldn't tell. Not that I was looking at them the whole time, but I uh, and I didn't really see them file in, I guess. But um, there has been a report by a radio reporter from. Um, I believe it's the radio station KFI in Los Angeles, who has reported, this is several weeks ago, that she had seen one of the jurors wink and smile at Michael Jackson's mother on more than one occasion when the jury filed in. And um, there was so much, actually, to, to try to pay attention to when I was there the first day that I must say I didn't think of... Um, looking at that until afterwards, but I didn't notice any members of the jury during the testimony itself looking over at Michael Jackson's parents, who were sitting in the second row, second or third row, uh, second row, near on the side near uh, the defense table, near Michael, although I did not see them making eye contact during the time that I was there. And they... um, Watching them was was a study in itself, and I will tell you a little bit more about that when we come back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking about what goes on behind the scenes of the Michael Jackson trial and inside the courtroom. Bringing the world together. You're listening to America's Voice. VoiceAmerica.com Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the Terrorism Hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, 
Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Go beyond success and discover a deeper meaning to life. Join host Jeffrey Gitterman and his guests, the premier thought leaders in business, politics, science, spirituality, and culture who have reached the pinnacle of financial and professional attainment in their fields only to discover a profound lack of fulfillment with what our culture defines as success. So won't you tune in every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time to Jeffrey Gitterman and Beyond Success, redefining the meaning of prosperity, right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. You want the truth? Face the facts. This is voiceamerica.com. Depend on it. Hello, this is Rory Gray, President of Greyhound Pets of America and host of Greyhounds Made Great Pets on Voice America. Join me every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern for an insightful and enjoyable talk about one of man's best friends, the Greyhound. Learn about the history of the Greyhound, discuss proper obedience and training techniques, and find out more about the Greyhound racing industry and what they are doing to help the adoption effort of the former race dog. If you own a Greyhound or just love dogs like I do, join me for Greyhounds Make Great Pets every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific right here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. The world leader in Internet talk radio. radio. You're listening to America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have questions or comments for Dr. Carol, call toll-free at 1-888-335-5204. Now let's get back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going behind the scenes of the Michael Jackson trial and into the courtroom where I was recently. I was up there giving an interview for Court TV from one of their platforms in the sky that were out that was outside the courtroom. Um, I was telling you before the break, starting to tell you about um, what it was like watching the parents who were sitting quite close to where I was, actually. And um, they didn't talk to each other. I mean, granted, you're not supposed to talk when the trial is going on, but going in and out, they really weren't communicating. Um, Michael's mother was just sort of sitting quietly, and his father um, looked on the one hand as though he were falling asleep. <laughs> um, he looked like he would rather be anyplace else in the world except there, which is, I'm sure, how he felt. And he had his hand up um, over his face, over his resting on sort of the, his left temple and um, covering, shading his eyes. And at first I thought that that was because he didn't want people to see that he was uh, falling asleep, you know, catch him dozing off. And that may have been part of it. But I think really uh, on a more, on a deeper psychological level, what it really was about that I think is that I think he feels rather guilty for what is going on, what has come home to roost, since I think that this man is um, primarily responsible for Michael turning into um, the kind of person that he did, uh, at the very least one with many problems, notably regarding his sexuality. And so that was um, that was really rather, it was hard to sit so 
close to them for me, knowing, I mean, uh, and holding back um, saying to the parents what I really would like to say um, about their being responsible. But I did not say anything. Um, And most interesting of all was um, watching Michael, although, of course, from the back where the media sat um, behind him, um, one really, he, he sat with his, he sat facing front or facing sideways, mostly towards the front, so that the media really could not get a glimpse of his facial expressions. All you could see, while the trial was going on, all you could see was um, the back of his head. And he was sitting very, very rigidly, uh, sitting up in his seat. He had a cushion on his seat. You know, he's been having back problems. And he has a cushion that he would adjust every now and then. But what was really fascinating was that while he was sitting down and then when he got up to walk out of the courtroom, he had his hands in a position where uh, behind his back sort of stuck together where it looked as though he was wearing handcuffs. Now, he wasn't wearing handcuffs. Um, you know, I mean, for example, when he fixed his pillow, you could tell that his hands were free. Uh, when he went outside the courtroom and he could wave to his fans, you know, you could see that he wasn't wearing actually wearing handcuffs. But the way that he held his hands stuck together, as if they were stuck together, by handcuffs, was the most fascinating part of this uh, altogether. Because psychologically, what, how I interpret that is um, his feeling guilty, that he is guilty. He's feeling as if he has handcuffs still on him, um, and as if he may well be going to jail to prison, um, an unconscious manifestation of where he thinks he's going to wind up and or where he thinks he belongs. Um, the whole situation is incredibly sad and especially sad for the boys who have been molested. And I guess I'll end on this. Um, the boys who have gotten up there on behalf of the defense um, who have denied that Michael Jackson did anything to them, that they were not molested, despite the fact that they slept in his bed for, you know, um, at least one of them over 300 times. Um, where are they coming from? Well, they could really not believe that they were molested, and that would be if they had repressed the memories that they were molested. Or it could be if Michael gave them alcohol, as he is accused of doing to the current accuser, and or drugs that would make them um, not remember, you know, inhibit their memories. wouldn't necessarily make them not remember altogether, but it would certainly be a factor in making it harder for the mind to register these memories. Um and if they, um, if they in fact uh, do remember that um, they were molested and they're saying that they weren't molested, needless to say that is, uh, one, because they could still feel threatened by Michael, 
or two because they could have been bribed by Michael through his um, attorneys and through the people that they would then get to contact um, these witnesses. Um, or um, they and or that they don't want the world to believe that they were molested by Michael Jackson. In a sense, this is a perfect platform for people like Macaulay Culkin. There have been rumors going around for years that Macaulay Culkin, who has admittedly slept in Michael Jackson's bed, was molested by him. Um, and what a perfect platform for Macaulay to have to announce to the world under oath that he wasn't molested as a way of trying to stop these rumors and stop people from believing that he was molested. And same for the other boys, that they were molested, a way to tell the world that they weren't, even though they you know, may well be sitting there knowing that indeed they were. So all of these things, um, you know, all of this, this trial becomes particularly interesting on a psychological level when you imagine what, um, when you try to figure out what ha is going on in the minds of the people who are testifying. And you realize that for most of them, many of them, it is not about, most of them, if not all of them actually, it is not about Michael Jackson, I mean except for the, I mean, except for the, the boy who was molested, um, but it is not about Michael Jackson. They have their own agendas. Debbie Rowe, what's her agenda? She uh, surprised the prosecution after apparently telling them, or else they wouldn't have put her on the stand, that she was going to say that she was coerced to um, to say good things about Michael Jackson in the rebuttal video. Um, what does she do? She gets on the stand and says all kinds of wonderful things about him. He's a good father, she said. Well, if he was such a good father, why is she fighting to get her children back from him, having a custody battle? Obviously, her agenda was either that she was bribed um, and or with money or with a promise, which may well turn out to be a hollow promise, to give her more time with her children or give them well, I don't think give them back altogether, but give her more time um, since she is having this custody battle, uh, maybe a promise to to be cooperative with some of that. So that's her agenda as well as it was obvious that she was hoping to get back into Michael's good graces and into his world again, not just to have her children back, but to be a part of his world. She almost seemed like a lovesick puppy uh, giving her testimony. And certainly it, was, it wasn't something that was going to be helping the boy who, who you know, the, why this trial is happening altogether. Um, everyone's having their own agenda, whether it's to deny that they were abused or to, to, be, um, to get something. What about the, the, the people who were testifying the day that I was there? Um, needless to say, for the ones who... Uh, were still working at Neverland, they certainly wanted to keep their jobs at the very least. So there's all, there are all these uh, agendas floating through the air, and I just hope that the jury can keep their eye on the ball and remember what this is really all about. It's about the boy who um, is alleging that Michael molested him, and um, the... <laughs> 
and stopping him from doing this to other little boys. That's what this is about. And I just hope, not only because of this particular case and the people involved, that the jury comes to the just conclusion, but that for our justice system in general, that we don't have another fiasco, which will cause the general public to, again, lose faith in getting justice in the justice system. It's only those who have the money to buy a dream team who often seem to be the ones who are getting away with murder or molestation. We just had another example, uh, Robert Blake, another nail in the coffin of people's perceptions of the justice system. It's, it's very uh, disheartening, uh, especially since one of the things that I do in my work is to be an expert witness. And I like to feel that what I'm doing is um, is helping towards reaching a just verdict, not just uh, playing a game. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this little peek behind the scenes and into the courtroom of the Michael Jackson trial, and that you realize that this is not just about Michael Jackson and what happens to him, but it has much larger social implications. This issue of child abuse is just a growing, growing problem as is the issue of um, how do we make sure that justice actually gets served in our court. If you would like to see the complaint that I wrote uh, that caused this trial that we're having, you can go to my website, which is drcarol.com, www.drcarole.com. Thank you for listening. Be back with you next week on Dr. Carol's Couch. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.